Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy Collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to The Laverne Cox Show, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. The reality is the fact that you were raised into that, you were born into that community, into that neighborhood where this is what you have to contend with, that's on purpose. It's not the system coming in like, ooh, how do I deal with this? This is a problem. Ooh, the system is like, ah, look at, look at that, round them up. And it's on purpose. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Laverne Cox Show. My name is Laverne Cox. It's a really interesting time in the world, right? In this post-2020 era where there was, you know, some of the largest political protest against police brutality that we've seen in our nation's history. And... Some reforms came out of that, not a lot, not as many as a lot of people would have liked. And post that, there are a lot of media outlets and even conflicting data that suggests that bail reform is directly correlated with what feels like a rise in crime in major cities like New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, etc. And I wanted to have a conversation with someone about that, with nuance, um, acknowledging the inherent white supremacy of our criminal system and how it was designed to disproportionately incarcerate, you know, black and brown people and the corruption and and how inhumane people are treated in prisons. I believe that everyone is a human being no matter what they've done and they should be treated with humanity no matter what they've done or accused of having done. That is a core value of mine. And what about people who are experiencing higher rates of crime, who are victims of crime? What about public safety? And when I discovered Olayami O'Loren, I thought, she might be the perfect person to talk with about this subject. 
Olayemi Olorn is a movement lawyer, political commentator, and writer originally from Nassau, the Bahamas. Olorn is a public defender at the Legal Aid Society in New York City and a leader in the movement to close Rikers Detention Center. She's a frequent media presence and has appeared on outlets like The Breakfast Club, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, MSNBC, CBS, NPR, NBC, and many more. She also co-hosts The Leftist Mafia on YouTube, as well as her own call-in show, Tea Time with Olay. And she has a monthly essay newsletter called Olornati, where she critically analyzes different issues of our time. She received her JD from St. John's University and her BA from Ohio University. Please enjoy my conversation with Olayami Oloren. Welcome, Olay, to the podcast. How are you feeling today? I am great. I'm feeling good. So, okay, first of all, I have to say that I don't know when it was that I became obsessed with you. You're so much fun and so unexpected, like the Dragon Ball Z in the background. Like, you're such a nerd, but like, you're (laughs) so fly. And you happen to be a really smart, well-researched, brilliant attorney. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Let's start there, the the work that you do as a public defender. Are you still doing that work? Because I know you're doing a lot more in the media now and you're writing a lot more. Yes. I'm a movement lawyer and a political commentator. I like to call it like a professional loudmouth, make my life easy to encapsulate it all. (laughs) Um, So I am not in the court day-to-day as a PD anymore, but that's as of very recently. Um, Right now, what I'm trying to do basically is Advocacy has to extend beyond the courtroom, right? Like, if you're in the courtroom, you're doing your best to contend with what the circumstances already are. But if I want my clients to be not between that rock and the hard place, I need to be out in the world trying to shift social consciousness. And as much as I love to, I love the work that I do, I'm still just one person. But there are lots of other incredibly talented people that are doing the same work, that have the same advocacy, but they don't have their foot in the door in these media spaces. So what I'm currently doing now is basically locating and plugging them into the media and stuff so that we can do better at combating these narratives that basically keep us incarcerated. So I consume a lot of, most of the media I consume now is, would be independent media, would be probably leftist media, a lot of internet stuff. Everyone on leftist mafia, I watch regularly for the most part. And it is rare to see Black faces in that space. I mean, on Young Turks, we have Shah Ritchie and we have Nina Turner. So there are Black faces in those spaces, but it feels scattered. I feel scattered, and a lot of the conversation on the left, left feels class reductionist to me. Yeah, I don't know if you get get that sense. It absolutely, and is. doesn't feel intersectional enough. And so it's like, and then it's yeah. it's almost like race becomes inconvenient to talk about or too divisive, absolutely. and it doesn't feel intersectional enough. Intersectionality has become a really bad word, especially with the governor yeah. of Florida. And it's so necessary. I, one little, like, soapbox I want to just kind of go on. I was thinking about, you know, Ron Sanis is, like, trying to ban AP. Well, I think he basically has. Or at yes. least they've changed the curriculum for AP um, African-American studies in high schools in Florida. And he was like, they have stuff like queer theory and intersectionality. And what does that have to do with history? And it's just like, That okay. is history. That's literally the epitome of history. Like, well, some, like, you know, Byatt Rustin, like, you know, <laughs> worked with Martin Luther King, yeah. organized the March on Washington, is Black and gay. Yeah. Um, 
And even the intersectional piece, like there's so many conversations I see now going on about like the, what's going on with men and 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 the crisis for men and a lot of a lot of more white men. And it's like you can't have that conversation without intersectionality because you have to yeah. talk about class, right? But they don't want to do that. So it's like. It's it's just a way of analyzing things. It's like a way to have a complicated approach to things, but I guess they uh, nuance isn't like isn't helpful to maintain the system as it is. <laughs> no, America America's all about that. America loves to carve the problem up into parts, right? They love to criticize a part of the problem. That way you don't talk about the overall structure that you need, right? That's why they won't talk about prisons, but they'll talk about private prisons, right? They'll talk about uh, non-livable wages, but they won't talk about capitalism overall. You know, they love to break it up like that. And I think it's because it's not to me a coincidence that you see when you see movements are successful, the first thing that they do is they start trying to prohibit what information we have access to, right? You see the the Black Lives Matter protests take off and George Floyd, and then immediately what you see them do is make this concerted effort to keep everything out of the books because they recognize that if you know certain things, it changes your position. Like a few days ago, I had someone say to me, I, I tweeted out a Huey Newton quote and they responded, some, you know, you know our community, how they can be with their homophobia and the transphobia. So she she couldn't wait to jump in as an opportunity. She was like, do you think Huey Newton would have been a trans activist? And I was like, um, first of all, actually, yes, probably. And I posted a screenshot from his book when he had a whole chapter, an essay about needing to join in with the liberation of LGBT people and women. So I was like, one, yes. But two, if he hadn't, that would not be a position. I wouldn't be like, ah, right. He's a transphobe. Got to get on that. <laughs> um, but that's what they do, right? So we, we're not informed. But if we learn more about things and people realize, hey, this is not actually new. The thing that you're pretending just because it's the first time you're hearing about it or it's being used as a political pawn in this way, it's not actually new. There's actually a lot of information and people change and you see that over time. So, yeah, they don't want any any form of intersectionality. Wow, well, it's deep. I mean, I think about the the piece of, you know, I just was on The Breakfast Club. I loved your appearance on The Breakfast Club. You were there Thank before you. me. Were. Um, wow. <laughs> and it was a beautiful interview and the comments on YouTube were great. And then there, you know, some of the excerpts on Instagram were so transphobic. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm used to it. I'm not bothered. Yeah. I and none of it's really even new anymore. Part of me is like, can you come up with something new? Right. <laughs> you know, they're just <laughs> misgendering me and whatever. But like that resistance to it's so deep to me. But like for black folks, for us who understand in a deep way systemic oppression would then go and participate in the oppression of other people. I mean, a lot of Black folks are really conservative, too. I yeah, mean, um, yeah. religion, Christianity. I mean, just the, how conservative a lot of Black folks is, is is interesting, even though we vote yeah. mostly Democratic. there we, A lot of us are rather conservative. It's because um, of race. Race. If Republicans, for one second, decided they weren't galvanized around white identity and racism, they'd probably be able to get a lot of Black people on their side. As someone who's from the Caribbean, incredibly conservative, incredibly conservative in terms of quote unquote value systems. But and I think that actually goes back to the whole thing of, mm. you know, wanting to criticize a part, but not the problem. The problem they're having is not capitalism. It's not systemic oppression. It is not a class. They don't have a problem inherently that there are these class divides or that everybody doesn't have access to the same things or don't have equity. What their problem is, is that they don't. And that's something that's why I think it's important in the way that we educate ourselves that we have to be critical of the entire system and be critical of all the ways 
ways in which oppression functions, because what happens is we come to be educated around only what we deem as having to do with us. And I think that's why they've made such a concerted effort to always constantly act as though the Black community is separate and apart from the LGBT community and just erase Black queer people. Because if you're you for one second have that inclusive moment and you think of it as our our shared thing, then you realize that there's no way for us to actually do anything that benefits all of us or creates equity for all of us without attacking the system overall. Mm-hmm. So much of the work that you do around, I mean, the, the piece you just wrote about um, mass incarceration being slavery and then the Teen Vogue piece about the Tyree Nichols case, uh, very, I mean, d- very different pieces, but similar in, call, in the way in which you call out structural white supremacy and the way that the criminal system, you, you're careful not to say the criminal justice system, but the criminal yeah. system um, was formed. And we, I think when we, yeah. I think those of us who've done work, you know, on the history of policing, like we know that police, policing started as slave patrols and yeah. you talk about the 13th Amendment and your piece and, and how that made slavery legal. Basically, um, as it outlawed yeah. it. A family member of mine, when I was doing my genealogy, like great, great-grandfather, Manuel Cox, was like, he was basically, like, in the 1900s, was, got arrested for stealing a dead cow that made the fam- his family sick. Like, they found a dead cow on the, like, found a dead cow <laughs> on the road, took the dead cow, they cooked it, everybody got sick from the cow in the house, and they tracked him <laughs> down and arrested him for stealing this dead cow that made everybody sick. He went to jail, and then out of jail, he was sold into indentured servitude. Like, this happened in my family. Um, so, in that moment, I and it's so funny, I didn't know, I, I've watched The Color Purple multiple times, but when I um, watched it, and when Sophia goes to jail, and then she comes out, and she's forced to be someone's maid, that's the system that we were dealing with yeah. that... If you were incarcerated, then you could basically be sold into slavery. I mean, it was right. literally being sold back into slavery at that time. Now it's just that the prisons themselves are, um, are, are you know, indentured servitude. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit about your um, piece that you just wrote about mass incarceration being slavery? Can you expound on that? Yeah. So, you know. I feel like people often don't want to have like very plain English conversations about the criminal system or the state of racism um, in America, what needs to be done, because the reality is the answer is very clear. But if you if, and if you don't want to do that, you want to push back and there has to be all this nuance to it. And I think that's why they don't want to call mass incarceration slavery. Why they like to be like, oh, it's modern day slavery or it's slavery 2.0 or all these things. I'm like, no, it's actually explicitly slavery. Like <laughs> you had slavery, your government went and recognized, hey, we'll abolish slavery, except except we can enslave people that we convict of a crime. And then they made a conscious choice, a conscious policy decision to engage in mass incarceration. And, you know, when you're raised in a society where you think of policing and you think of prisons like you think about water and air, you don't realize it as a man-made institution or these are policy choices that you don't have to live in a country where they have 2 million people incarcerated or it doesn't make sense to say you're innocent until proven guilty, but 400,000 people are locked up pre-trial. So I like to engage it from that perspective and recognize that, People are not going to, even if you tell them that and you present them with the facts, they are not going to just abandon their entire worldview. I expect it to be like abolition and really come in to internalize these things has to be a process. But reality is that, is that mass incarceration is slavery and it doesn't make us safer beyond the fact that it's morally bankrupt. Can you parse that out more? I mean, I read your piece, but I would love for you to talk specifically about the labor 
what prisoners get paid for their labor, how much money they're generating. Like you have all these facts that are, are cited yes. in, in your piece. What was, um, we should link to this in um, show notes. I forget where you wrote it, but we'll link to it in the show notes. It's the appeal. The appeal. Um, yeah, li- this is the thing. Um, America, America spends more money on policing and mass incarceration than anywhere else in the world. And there's no other place that constantly complains about being not safe and crime hysteria constantly. And it's interesting because America will present it, you know, the news and the media will treat crime waves or all these crime problems as something to reflect negatively on progressives or activists or people who are abolitionists. And it's like, well, that makes no sense because the only method that's in place in this country is policing, is mass incarceration, is tough on crime. So if you're saying that we're not safer, that is a reflection on that system being um, not successful. But importantly, it's not meant to be, right? So the whole purpose of our legal system is to make sure that we reproduce these kinds of harms. America has made a business over this. America makes billions, over $11.6 billion on goods produced from prison labor every year. That's not including- $11.6 billion on goods produced by prison labor. That's That's an important- thing for people to just digest that there are people who are incarcerated who can make like maybe they make four hundred dollars a year like in their pennies you know and they won't make that and they won't make that because living costs will come out of that um yeah do they even do i think they tax it too yes they absolutely do tax it and most states don't even pay so i think on average it's somewhere like on a rich state, if you have a state that cares, you might get 21 cents. And most states just completely... 21 cents a day or 21 cents? Yeah, 21 cents, 21 cents a day, 21 cents. And that's if that. But most states, most states just don't even engage in the pretense. You're just not paid, period. You just have to engage in this labor and that labor is what is used. And on top of that, so if you have $11.6 billion in goods that they're producing, and that's in private and public prisons, I want to make sure I make that clear because people will be like, You'll say that and they'll be like, oh, these private prisons got to go, turn into a business. The whole thing is a business. And that's important because a business is meant to expand, right? That's literally, that's just not, and that's not a theoretical one. That's what America's actual like corporation laws are and what their whole thesis around business is, right? So if a business is meant to expand, they make that much money off of prison labor. They make another $28 billion in fines and fees associated with criminal convictions. And I think that's important because... The vast majority of everybody in the U.S. criminal system is represented by a public defender, which means Mm -hmm. they're too poor to afford an attorney. And I need us to understand what that really means in terms of poverty. I, as a person, could not afford my own lawyer. If right now I had to pay a lawyer, I'd be sick. I'd be like, oh, this is going to hurt me. This is going to cut me dry. And I would not qualify for a public defender. And that was even at my brokest, just fresh out of law school, dead broke. I still wouldn't have qualified for a public defender. So to qualify Mm. for a public defender, you have to be underneath the poverty line. Statistically speaking, most arrests uh, nationwide, most most people who are arrested made less than $12,000 annually prior to arrest. Oh. So this is dead poor. So if the majority, the vast majority of who in, who in your criminal system across the country are literally underneath the poverty line, what does that tell us? So now if you're arrested, you already live in the poorest communities, the most under-resourced communities. And once you're arrested, you have a criminal case, you can't get a job, you lose your housing, you have fines and fees. If you have a criminal conviction, you go to jail. Now you and your family are saddled in what is quite literally billions of dollars nationwide of debt. How could you ever possibly escape that? How could you ever turn your life around? How could you ever be the wealthy? You can't. You can't, and neither can your family and your loved ones. And and what's deep to me is how often black and brown people 
are criminalized so early. Yeah, They get us in the system so early. There was a beautiful podcast that I posted in 2020 um, that looked at the history of policing. And I forget the professor who um, did the podcast, but it looked at the history of policing. And he his research started from being arrested. I think it was in an Ivy League school. He was arrested for like putting some posters up. They didn't realize he was a student at the school. And then he like sued and they tried, and eventually they dropped the charges. But what just stuck out to me, and this is years ago that I listened to it, is that the police were like, there has to be a record. You're Black. There has to be some kind of record on you already because there's like yeah. the assumption that we've, because we are often criminalized so early. Yeah. This is a good time to take a little break. We'll be right back though. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Alrighty, we're back. Luckily, I haven't been profiled by police much, but the first time I went to Vegas in 2012, I was stopped on the strip and a police officer um, said, can we see your ID? And I was like, what? Yeah. You know, and the, and the funny thing is I had just met these white girls at Pure, at Pure Nightclub. We were going to After Hours. I was, with, you know, I met these white girls and like, oh, this is Laverne from VH1. I just met them on the show in VH1. This is Laverne. They're drunk white girls. This is Laverne from VH1 to the cops. And they're like, ah! And they're like, we need to see your ID. And I'm just like, well, what is this about, sir? And I'm like, you know, I'm like, what is this about? You know, <laughs> what's going on? You know, <laughs> you know I, I get very, you know, proper one. Yeah, you get your nice voice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's happening? What's going on? You meet the description of someone we're looking for. And I was just like, mm-hmm. really? <laughs> right. Do I? <laughs> really? And then, yes. um, I look real cute. Um, and so I give them my ID and they're gone for like 20 minutes or so. And then I'm just kind of like, we're, and the girls are like, what's going on? You know, and. So, and they come back like 20, 25 minutes later. So they're taking a minute. Yeah. They bring my ID and they say, 
oh, you've been a very good girl. And they just kind of look at me. You've been a very good girl. Because they can't believe it. Th- that, that's what I'm saying. His reaction that. was so, he was so surprised. He was so surprised that there wasn't a warrant, that there wasn't some arrest, that there wasn't yes. something. I, in, my, in retrospect, I'm thinking like, okay, they didn't want a black trans woman on the strip. They probably thought I was doing sex work and they were trying to like, that's what I'm thinking. That's probably yeah. what was going on. Yeah. But he was so upset that I hadn't been arrested. Yeah. And that there wasn't something they could, there warrant, an outstanding warrant that they could get me on. And it was, that was deep to me. That yeah. was like, I'll, and so it's just the assumption that, so they criminalize us so early and then it's just like, it becomes this cycle. Yeah. Because the reality is, I mean, listen, we're, our environments and, and, and how we are perceived in this world and what we are set up to, what is made normal for us has everything to do with who we become, right? Like the reason why I went to school, I went to college is because my daddy went to college. Both my parents went to college. So it wasn't, yeah. I didn't even have to think about it. There were certain things. But by the time I got to America and I'm all all these white environments and they're saying all these things to me that are so inconsistent. For people who don't know you're from the Bahamas. Yes. She's Bahamian, darling. That's the beautiful accent. Thank you. <laughs> Go on. And so, you know, you're very much what becomes normal for you or what seems likely for you is based on that. And like, so what, and what I went, when I moved to America, I went to Florida, then West Virginia, then Ohio, then New York. And I'm by myself. My parents are home in the Bahamas, no concept of America, no speech, no warning, no nothing. Right. So I'm kind of like learning as I go and I'm realizing this is really racist. And I remember my senior year of college, my English, my senior high school, my English teacher called me into her classroom to tell me how I was going to fail out of college. Like she's giving me this whole speech about how I'm not going to be successful. And I remember it goes on for so long because she clearly, when she played it out in her mind, you know, she thought she would say a couple of little things and I would like fall apart or you would see the impact of me really internalizing that. And you're a senior in high school. What And what was she basing this on that you would fail out of college? Not a senior in high school at a college preparatory school with the most college acceptances in the senior class. But nothing other than, you know, if you, she expects that this way that, you know, her inherent, you know, w- about whiteness and centering itself, right, is that she, her opinion should mean so much more to me than it, it, it will, it will dictate uh, beyond what are the facts, what are the statistics, whatever my family believes, because if this is West Virginia, you should be raised in the world, in her mind, you should be raised in the world where you think that you are beneath, where you already have these low self-esteem, that I should be able to come in here and, and plant this seed in you, and it should really take hold. But for me... My daddy went to Oxford. He's an architect. My mom is a CPA. My big sister went to college. So I'm sitting there looking at her, trying to process but, it. But you were also raised in the Bahamas. I think there's something, when I when I look at like a Grace Jones and, a, and an Iman and a Naomi Campbell and people who are not, I mean, certainly these are, you know, colonized places, but yeah. there's a real specific way that racism operates in the United States to like exactly w- to like break black people down. Yeah, exactly. And when you see and when you see a Grace Jones, I just remember reading her book, her uh, her memoir and like she gets here and she was shocked that you know when she was, but she never internalized this sense of yeah. less than. Iman, oh, the brilliant Iman. She always knew she was a queen. Yeah. Naomi, you know, Rihanna, like when you don't And that is a privilege. It's a privilege and there's and I think so. It, we have to, as African-Americans, as Black folks raised in the United States, many of us have to unpack the ways in which we deeply internalized racism and deeply exactly. been told that we're less than and exactly. that we should expect less. It is so deeply ingrained. And you see it when you see people, Black folks from other countries come here. I just need to say that. Yeah. 
no, exactly, exactly. And we're not, and we're not in, informed in the same way. So you'll see people, and that's a conversation that I had to, a learning, it was years of really figuring out that out because I remember in that moment, um, I'm like, what is, what's going on here? Why is she even saying these things? It takes me a minute to process it. And then throughout the years, you start to be in this America where you're getting a lot of that and it starts to seep in, right? Law school were the worst years of my life because of the ways that they psychologically they were constantly trying to convince me that I don't belong, that I'm not going to do well. And I thought to myself, I have the benefit. I have the benefit of being able to come from a country where I'm not being told my blackness. I wasn't raised. You know, we have, we listen, colonized, we have a lot of problems, but it doesn't present in the same way. Yeah. But I'm like, I had the benefit of not being raised to, to, to think these things or not feeling like I have these particular kind of limitations. And I'm this close psychologically to, you know what I mean? This is unraveling for me. And I thought to myself, if you raise, if you grow up in a country, it doesn't matter. Like you could, people look at America, America, and I think a lot of uh, black immigrants or black people elsewhere will make the mistake of thinking because you're from your own country and you're looking at the most of what America has to offer. But you're looking at, at that of what America wants to offer to white people, and you're looking at that from your black country. So that's from everybody, right? You're feeding, you believe the diversity melting pot lie, and then you don't realize, like. Yeah, if you're being raised in a country that is like systemically keeping you out of every single door, is nice, is making sure it goes out of its way to not only not let you know about opportunities, but should you happen to find out, they will do everything that they they can to tell you that it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't this. You are being set up to never escape that. Speaking of crimes of poverty, though, I really wanted to talk to you about this because it's something I've been thinking a lot about, and I and and I met you. I just thought about Khalif Broward, that yeah. horrific situation where he was held, I believe, at Rikers Island for a couple of years um, just because he didn't have bail money. Um, And eventually was, you know, I think his case was dismissed or something. They falsely accused him of stealing a backpack when he was 16 years old that he didn't steal. And they kept Mm -hmm. him at Rikers for years, most of which he was in solitary confinement. And even once the charges were dismissed and he was released, he never recovered from the psychological impact of that experience. And he eventually took his life. And that's kind of what spawned the the closed Rikers campaign and a lot of what you see uh, for bail reform. And so I wanted to, so I remember talking with someone in law enforcement about that case. And what they said is Khalif had a warrant. So it wasn't just that he couldn't afford bail. It was that, and I looked it up and I was like, oh, there was a warrant for his, like he had a warrant. He had been, something had happened. And for whatever reason, there was a warrant out for his arrest for something he had done or been involved in, hanging out with the wrong people. But but, but, that's how the system legitimizes itself. And so then I'm like, okay. But then the question seems to be, and I've looked up statistics and the statistics are saying different things. There's anecdotal evidence that there's a lot of anecdotal stuff. I know a lot of people who are experiencing a a lot of crime right now. Here in New York, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, crime seems to be up in terms of how it's affecting people I know. Um, There are different statistics that say Certain crimes where bail reform happened went up 20%. You know, different sources are saying different things, right? Yeah. So I feel like the data is inconclusive right now. But it feels to me like, so for me, I want to be careful. I want to acknowledge that our criminal system is deeply flawed, based in white supremacy, broken, that... Mm -hmm. Many people are incarcerated for crimes of poverty for just not having money. That schools and and certain neighborhoods have been defunded. 
people have just been demoralized. Like we, you can mm-hmm. look at, there's a direct relationship between uh, neighborhoods that were redlined and <laughs> the worst schools, yeah. right? So there's all this history, like stuff that's like, you know, yeah. we can see, but it also f- seems as if that because people are committing crimes and are out in a few hours, that they're going on and committing more crimes. And for me, the question is a lot of a lot of abolitionists and defund folks talk about the humanity of those folks who are accused and those people who are incarcerated. And I believe in that. I believe everyone is a human being. But what about those people who are victims of crime? Okay. So you who were steeped in this work, what are your thoughts on that? And 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 yeah. talk to me, Olay. Okay. So listen, yeah, there's a lot of things to unpack. Mm-hmm. So First of all, we're inundated with propaganda 24-7, and that's something that's important. We are inundated with propaganda to make us oppose progressive reform. Did you say propaganda? Propaganda. Uh, and there's a website, there's a beautiful website called justicenotfair.org, where they have, uh, they debunk all of the myths when it comes to bail reform, and specifically in New York and in Chicago. Here's the reality about bail. The purpose, the legal purpose of bail is to make sure to ensure someone returns to court. Yes. The media loves to talk about it to us as though it's this public safety analysis and whatnot. That's not what it is. The purpose of bail is to ensure someone returns to court. If you have money for bail, you'll be out. It has nothing to do with dangerousness. The five cops who killed Tyree Nichols are out on bail, on cash bail. It's about money. Rittenhouse posted his cash bail. He was out. Every white person, every rich person, they are out. So that's one. Two, statistically in New York City, it has not led to a rise in crime. The purpose actually, we, like I said, the legal purpose is to make sure you return to court and actual returning to court has been higher since passing bail reform. And in terms of rearrest for any level of violent crime, it has been less than 2% statewide. And it's important to know that 80 to 85% of all felonies in New York State end up getting resolved as something far less than that anyhow. And over 80% of all arrests nationwide are not for violent crime. It has sensationalized us in that way, but that's just not the reality of what's happening. So that's the one. Two, mm-hmm. we all care about crime. There's a way people think, you know, oh, only they care about crime. Caring about crime does not mean that you have to believe that the way to stop crime or to prevent crime is to keep expanding and putting more money into policing and mass incarceration. At the end of the day, that's not working. So, yes, we all care about crime. That's what we're doing. They love to focus on places like New York State, which is also a dog whistle. They love to focus on New York City, focus on Chicago, focus on L.A., focus on any places where there is a large Black population that is being criminalized. Meanwhile, you would never know that New Jersey, under Governor Christie, eliminated cash bail in 2014. 14, you ain't heard a peep. But New York City does it in 2020 and you can't hear about nothing else. Chicago even suggests doing it. It's not even implemented as law yet. And they're lying and pretending like that has something to do with the spike in crime. So that's one. Mm. Two, importantly... Oh, I don't know what number we're at. Uh, but when it comes to <laughs> Break it down, crime though. in the communities, the communities most impacted by crime are the ones telling you that they don't want more police. At the end of the day, when you see these news articles and you see people, oh, I'm so scared and so crime, they're never the victims of crime. They never live in these neighborhoods. They're never calling for more police in their neighborhoods. They're calling for it somewhere else, right? It, it, it just as reality is that the safest communities are not the most police, they're the most resourced. If that was the case, we wouldn't have the same communities, the same black and brown poor communities being the high crime areas for generation and after generation. So I think it's important to listen like, yes, we do want us to listen to the people that are most impacted by crime, the people that live in the black neighborhoods that are dealing with the police. And that's who's telling you, hey, what I don't need is a police officer stationed at my house like it is every day conducting illegal stops or harassing black kids that come off the subway or doing that. What we need is that same money, the same willingness that you have to put into policing. You should put that into mental health. You should put it into housing. You should put it into education. You should put it on all these things because that is what causes crime. And I think 
You know, when we think of crimes of poverty, people think of it as just like, did you steal some food because you're hungry? That's crime of poverty or you stole some money. But crimes of poverty, poverty impacts your psyche. It impacts your life. It, it impacts how you deal with problems, how you respond to things, how things compound you. I always tell people in 2015, I was far more likely to knock you out than in 2023 because I have money and disposable income now. And I think people have to think about that. It's a lot of what the criminal system is, is us judging people for how they respond to circumstances that we're not in. Like we will we will say nonviolent crime. We'll make carve-outs for nonviolent crime is understanding how that's linked to poverty, but not violent crime when some people are living in communities where they have to fight for their lives, where they have to engage in it, so where they feel like they have to take for others. So it has to be a more holistic picture. So I recognize that they're not going to, and I'm not necessarily asking for that, a world where they are going to open up all the jails every day and open up the courts. But what I'm saying is right now you have invested, you have hyper invested into policing and mass incarceration. What if instead by bit by bit, you start divesting from that and giving people the money that they need the same way white communities, uh, it's treated as an opioid crisis and not the crack epidemic or the war on drugs, right? It's an opioid crisis or, oh, mental health. Or you see Mm. the kind of things they raise in court. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard about the affluenza defense. I'm too affluent to understand my... Oh, that was a mess. And that's real life. And that's real life. (laughs) I know that gagged me. I was like, are you girl? It, I mean, yes, if you have money and this, I think it feels like if you have money, black and white, then you are more likely to like not spend time in prison. You're in in a different position. Um, You're in a really different position. So class, but intersectionality. So then, so, okay. I hear you. I'm with you. But what Mm. happens so there are people, I mean, I know someone who were, they, they, um, they police a really high crime, one of the highest crime areas in Long Island. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of gangs, mm-hmm. a lot of drug, you know, yeah. drug dealers. They leave them alone a lot. They're just like, okay, chill, whatever. There's a lot of warrants out on them. Then sometimes it's like, you know, there's guns and there's whatever, and they have to arrest them. And then a few hours later, they're out. And then... That is a bit... Can I, can I address that right quick with this few hours? That is not the case. Like, let's just... you If you get arrested in New York, you are going to be in jail. You're looking at least the next 16 hours or something before you get arraigned. It's like a day's process, one. But two, most of everything in New York City is still bail eligible. The only thing in New York City... Maybe that's Long Island then. Because in Long, Long, cause, cause, Long Island is even worse in the terms cases of, I'm hearing about. Don't mind them. The, 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 that like the next day they're out. This is what it's, I've been told. Yeah, if there, it depends on what it is. But again, this is propaganda. They literally, they lie. They lie. Just point blank, period. Okay. And I know that's hard to, okay. to understand, like to believe. No, because I'm we girl. should be able to rely on, I know, but they lie. <laughs> and also Long Island, let's also look at like the areas. Long Island is, is incredibly segregated. Like incredibly segregated. It uh, New, York, New York City in general, people don't talk about that enough, but New York City has the most segregated schools in the country. That is a reality. Yes. It's not a coincidence. Long Island, yeah, they basically have relegated their entire black and brown and poor population to one little area and they police them and they treat them this way and whatever it is and they saddle people uh, with criminal convictions. In New York, in New Jersey, if you have a gun and they arrest you, you're going to jail. Especially without cash bail. Yes. Without the cash bail system, Correct. it's worse for you because they're not even going to set a bail cost on you. They're just going to remand you and you're going to be, not only are you going to be in jail pre-trial, but you're going to jail for at least three years. So that's just not true and it's also just not the vast majority of what's in our criminal system at all. Like, at all. Okay. I wish. I've, I've so, represented over a thousand people in New York, not one gun case. Wow. Wow. Okay, it's that time again. We'll be right back. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. 
Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. We are back. So then I'm, I'm, I don't want to say a victim. I've been, I've been propagandized. I've been propagandized <laughs> around crime. And I, but I do also know a lot of folks who are experiencing crime, this thefts and a girlfriend yeah. of mine was like hit by some homeless person who obviously was mentally ill and was struck by yeah. them. Another person I know was struck by someone who was mentally ill and homeless. But when I think about the, those communities, right, that are over-policed and under-resourced, and I think about like the, the terrible schools, the terrible schools, yeah. and then like the kids who come up and they're just, they're, there's gangs everywhere and there's just not a lot of even options around like you're just kind of like got to get in this gang or like leave the neighborhood, right? You got to yeah. somehow get the, your kid out or something like that. So it's like, how do how does one even begin to when there, it, there's intergenerational trauma, neglect, mm -hmm. just inhumanity, right? These if, if, yeah. if, if generations and generations. How do you begin to make inroads when like the education hasn't been valued for um generations? You can't. And you can't. You and can't? I think that's the no, and I'll tell you what, America has this way of convincing, especially with black people, convincing black people that it's on us and on our shoulders to hope that you are the one person that makes it out. You know what I mean? That it's incumbent on us to try to figure out a magical way to trudge through adversity that nobody else would have to. But the reality is you are being set up. You are set up to fail. And the way that the system legitimizes itself is by not recognizing its role until after that, right? Like the reality mm. is the fact that you were raised into that, you were born into that community, into that neighborhood where this is what you have to contend with. That's on purpose. It's not the system coming in like, oh, how do I deal with this? This is a problem. Ooh. The system is like, ah, look at, 
Look at that. Round them up. And it's on purpose. There's a reason why, you know, NYCHA buildings are surveilled the way they are. They put up all these rules. They arrest people for lobbying. They have gang databases where, oh, you kids are hanging out together? Gang, I'm going to charge you for this. And if you do that enough times, people have enough rap sheets. What people to come to believe what their options are, what they come to believe about each other, where they come to value, and all these different things will work in tangent to eventually you see a system and a society of total, or you see a community that appears to be in disarray. And it appears like it's just the community that's in this disarray, but you were thrown into disarray and you were told fight figure it out and when you get to when you get to the door and you're trying however you are trying to fight your way out i'm going to be there to decide are you the one i let out or are you somebody that goes to jail being criminalized listen i in the bahamas we have massive poverty we're the sixth most expensive uh, place to live in the world we have a minimum wage of five dollars and 25 cents a dollar is equal so i know what it is to see black people be impoverished but i'm not i don't know what it is in terms of growing up I can see the difference in what it means to be criminalized in that way in which you're taught about yourself. Because we could be poor in the Bahamas, but there's not a boot to my neck. You see what I'm saying? There's not a boot to your neck. They're not the police. The Royal Bahamas Police Force is not there trying to make it their every business to put you in and out of the jail system. In America, the average Black man at some point in time will be arrested by the time he's 29 years old. That's not a Black reality in a lot of Black nations that are Black-majority nations that are dealing with poverty, that are third world, but they don't deal with what it is, the day-to-day criminalized experience. So I think it's important for us to, when we look at that, like, yeah, that that is how they're being set up. Mm. So if we can't, so if we can't make interventions, you know, dilapidated schools and under-resourced, and there is higher crime in those communities, yeah. then what do we do then if we can't heal that? I think it's incumbent on, and that's why I said one, I think it's important that we, we be educated to what is the larger structures and what we need to go after. And the fact that we need to make it clear, like, no, it's not a bootstrap thing. It's not our initiative. It's not something that we individually can pull ourselves up about. It's about what we have the ability, the privilege and the structures and we need to be placing our monies and our efforts there. It's also incumbent upon Black people that do have the benefit, like myself, of you think you know better, do better. You live in those communities. Like me and my my mentor lives two streets away from me. We live in Flatbush. And for mm-hmm. a month, they were conducting an illegal checkpoint right outside my my window. And every day I'm recording it every night. I'm this and I'm like, me and my mentor are talking about this. And eventually we're like, we're just going to be two black lawyers in this neighborhood and see it. And this is what's happening. It's like, let's sue. Can you break to an illegal checkpoint? Like, what are they checking for? Are these stopping and frisking people? or So what they've been, what they were doing in Flatbush for a month until I tweeted about it and then they stopped immediately. So every night for a month, the police were, they would wait until like two, three in the morning when they think people are like going to sleep and they would come and they would literally pull out checkpoints like Siskar, and they would just pull over every black guy that drives by. Every single black guy specifically I've been recording. I recorded it for a month. And the only reason I didn't tweet out the videos was because I was like, it's right in front of my house. <laughs> um, and then I'm like, okay, let me let me let me tweet about this. And then the minute I tweeted about it, the minute I tweeted about it, checkpoint gone. And I'm like, you know, here's a here's an unfortunate reality. They do things like this. And this is something I've realized just as a black the difference between what my experiences were with, with landlords or police based on when I was in law school versus being an attorney. It's very different. The way that they, they treat us and they engage us as though we have no power, because usually we don't. We don't. Yeah. So they they treat us like we can do these things. It doesn't matter because they can do it over the cover of night and there's nobody to check it. So what I realized in that moment was like, oh, that's messed up. It bothers me significantly that the only reason y'all were going to do this every night and can, even as illegal as it is, they did it every single night for a month. And the only reason and they stop is because one black gal there happened to have a lot of followers a lawyer say something and they don't want the little bit of attention and as much as that upsets me that's also what makes me realize 
okay, if I can do that and me and my mentor can now say, hey, let's go sue. Let's go request documents or whatever for where these checkpoints are supposed to be. Imagine if we all have, if we're all educated in a particular kind of way and the other ones of us that are in our communities can point out, can do this, can get involved, can do these things. That does give Mm -hmm. us a lot more power. And I don't mean the power. We cannot change it all on our own. There's no individual one of us and there's not even us in, in totality. Black people just do not have that power in this country. But we do have the power to get more educated, to get more involved, to where we can demand as a collective, where we can place and what we call for from them. Because the picture, we have to stop leaving it, I think, at sympathy. Because what happens is, you know, you'll see with George Floyd and you'll see all these people and all everybody join hands with you. Like, they're so outraged by the problem, but they're not outraged by the problem. They're outraged by one symptom they saw. You know, that video shocked their conscience. They'll tell you, oh, they're so sad, but Khalif Browder, they're so sad. But then oppose bail reform, oppose, you know, any efforts to decarcerate the way the community is and any of the things that lead us to actually prevent these outcomes. So what I think it becomes is, Let's let's educate each other differently because what we call for becomes differently. Like I could easily be this person and be a prosecutor, you know, be on the opposite end being terrible if I didn't have a mentor who handed me Angela Davis. Right. So I think that's what it becomes us to get involved in our own communities and do our best to shift our social consciousness, consciousness to advocating towards the right things like, hey, it's not good enough. I don't need you to name this street after me. I don't need you to do any of that. I need you to put money into this community the same way you want to give 10.6 Almost, we give $10.4 billion to NYPD, mm-hmm. and they're, o- they're also on track to spend over $820 million in overtime. And we have 35,000 NYPD officers, and they hired in 1,000 more, but they cut money on education. I'm like, I'm in this space of like thinking about our communities, and I'm thinking about all these kids who are, who have to grow up in these situations when they're criminalized. And then I'm thinking about cops who are working in the system who are like, the system is corrupt, but everyone in that system isn't necessarily corrupt, right? No. Like, no, but it doesn't matter. So, so, so it's like what to do, what, what what to do. And this is an ongoing conversation, but I love the idea of the education piece because I, I think even me coming in with like, isn't crime higher? Isn't it, it a result of bail reform? And knowing that the data, even as I look at the data, that there's conflicting data and we always have to check our sources. So becoming, I think the pe- the biggest piece is becoming more educated about what's going on yeah. so that we can have accurate information to mobilize yeah. and to mobilize um, our communities. So that feels like a big takeaway uh, yeah. um, from this conversation that we can um, give the listeners. Yeah. And I think something hopeful is to remember is that, you know, Audrey Lord said it, but there are there are no new pains and there are no new ideas, just new ways to make them felt. And I think um, it's sad, but it also is something that's to our benefit. The reality is our history and our thinkers and our leaders and our ideas have always been suppressed, right? Audre Lorde, Angela Davis, the other day I posted a Toni Morrison video and someone on my, one of my followers real life said to me, who is this great person? I'm like, but 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 girl, they don't want us to know. Around the right. and Abbott, they don't want us they to know. They don't want us to know. But the reality is that we can tell them. We can tell them. We can. We have new ways to tell them. I have to end with my last question. And my last yes. question for every podcast is what else is true? And it comes from my therapy and the idea of both and. Even when the world is on fire, even when things are very difficult, that is true. But there's also something else that's true in my body. You know, if I'm if there's pain in one part of my body, there's one part of my body where it's neutral and positive. If I can focus on that part of my body, yeah. I can shift my, my nervous system. I can re-regulate my body. So for you today, oh, Lyme, oh, Lauren, what else is true? 
what else is true? Um, that I'm gonna go see Beyonce in July because I'm blessed. <laughs> you got your tickets already? I brought, where is she in July? Here in New York? I'm going to Chicago. You know, I gotta get to tickets where you could get them. <laughs> you, I saw Formation for the first time in Chicago because I didn't know where I was gonna be in 2016. So I was like, girl. So I went to Chicago and then I moved to LA and then I had done the Ivy Park campaign and she invited me and I got to see Formation twice. Listen, bless. Yes. Um, no one would be able to talk to me no more if I was you. I I wouldn't talk to nobody no more. I'd act so brand new. Oh my God, my bio would say Beehive approved. Be approved, don't speak to me. Girl, the Beehive, we're both strong in Beehive. Deeply. Thank you, that's amazing. Olaimi Oloren. Sometimes... A person comes along and they're just so charismatic and smart and insightful and passionate and they just have something. (laughs) I just think she's a superstar. (laughs) I think she's a superstar. Um, What was interesting for me doing research about this is like finding statistics that said that, you know, there was a relationship between bail reform and crime and then checking the source and being like, okay, this source is a corporate funded, like right wing (laughs) institution. And then, like, checking another source that had some similar information, but very different information. And so being willing to cross-reference sources is so important. And, like, looking into the political potential, political bias of a source. And most, most media is politically biased. If they say they're not, they're lying to you. We all have our biases and they're they're cooked in. What we decide to cover, what we decide to talk about, that's bias. So anybody saying that they're not biased, then don't believe them. And double, triple check sources. Yeah, that's a big thing for me coming out of this. Just like misinformation and just like triple checking sources. For me, public safety as a, as a trans person, as a woman, as a Black person, I have never felt safe in the world. And most of us, I think we're all hardwired in our nervous systems to crave safety. So much of what we do when we're in fight, flight, or freeze is about like us feeling safe and needing to feel safe. And a lot of us don't feel safe right now for a lot of reasons. Do we not feel safe because of propaganda, because of misinformation that we've been fed? and um, Or do we not feel safe because of the material conditions of the world around us? And then how do we like regulate and find spaces within ourselves where we can feel safe in the face of all of these challenges? Thank you so much for listening to The Laverne Cox Show. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with everyone you know. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Laverne Cox and on Facebook at Laverne Cox For Real. Please check the show notes for resources and a lot more information on this subject. Until next time, stay in the love. The Laverne Cox Show is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.